Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast which covers economics, politics, and war. Today's topic is saving Congress. Our speaker is Philip Wallach, who is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Philip is the author of a book entitled Why Congress, which describes the role of the legislature in the American constitutional framework and why we need to encourage Congress to legislate instead of delegating its responsibilities to the executive branch, the bureaucracy, and the courts. I want to find out why McCarthy was removed as Speaker of the House, whether the House should centralize control in its leadership or decentralize responsibilities to its committees, and what are the best ways to achieve bipartisan legislative compromises. Buckle up. Philip, can you please begin with your opening six-minute remarks. America is an incredibly diverse and complex country. Its vast geographic scope makes it unlikely to be a homogenous population. Natural consequence of having lots of different kinds of people is that we have lots of disagreement. What are we going to do about that disagreement? How are we going to make it work for us? How are we going to live with it? James Madison very famously offers this classic argument in the 10th Federalist Paper. How can we make this multiplicity an asset? He thinks that an extended republic can actually have a better chance of working than a small republic, contrary to the conventional wisdom of his time. And his vision is one of a continuous shifting interplay of interests and factions of all kinds who form broad coalitions for action. It has to be fluid by continuously playing groups in our society off against each other and getting them to find opportunities for collective action together. From very early on in the Congress's history, we got political parties. Parties reduce complexity to make things tractable. Without parties, things can be a big chaotic mess. Congress is a history of letting our factions rub up against each other. Parties in Congress structure that interplay. And when things are going well, Americans of all kinds have a sense that their views are represented in the Congress and that this negotiation that is ongoing allows their views to have their place, gives them the respect that they're due, makes them a part of our action that we take together. In the 21st century, our political landscape is dominated by Parties turning everything into a pitched battle between two sides all the time. You hear about political scientists who say we live in an unprecedentedly polarized era. What does that actually mean? Sometimes they suggest that American people themselves are just more divided into a staunchly liberal bunch and a staunchly conservative bunch, and this is deeply ideological. But that's not what their data is actually capable of showing. What their data is capable of showing is that in Congress, our legislators sort themselves into two opposed groups more than ever before. But that happens as much because of things internal to Congress as external and in our society. We live in a leadership-dominated, crisis-based politics. Folks who would argue that Congress is just a do-nothing body, it can never get anything done, that's not true. Congress passes huge laws all the time. It often does so in response to crises. Think of COVID as an example. We got trillions of dollars out the door within months of COVID coming to this country. Congress can make things happen in a hurry when it wants to, but it doesn't tend to be very good at creating this fluid factional interplay. 
We don't have a lot of healthy debate on really hard topics. Immigration is the topic that I use as a central example. We know that there's a failed immigration system in our country. Whatever your politics, you can't really be happy about the way it's operating today. And we have a mutual interest in making things work better, but we somehow can't allow our factions to work out their differences in a way that they could come to trust each other enough to act. And Congress in the 21st century has also become addicted to just letting the executive branch act and then complaining about it. Second guessing, acting like a peanut gallery. And meanwhile, it's become more and more marginalized from the real decision making in American life. I argue that that's a real mistake because we really need Congress to be the place where these factions work out their differences. A presidential election is a horrible substitute. If we're hanging everything on presidential elections, they take on an apocalyptic significance and make everyone crazy. Congressional failure is not just a symptom of broader social problems. It is also a cause of our feeling of social disintegration. Congress has to be the place where we allow our representatives to work through issues, and when they fail at that, causes us to question the legitimacy of our government and it leads to this growing tendency toward escapist fantasies of all kinds, whether they be of imagining a civil war or secession, anything but realizing that you actually need to sit down with people who disagree with you and figure out what to do. The House changes the rules and how it operates each congressional session. Sometimes it invests centralized control with its speaker, and at other times, power is decentralized to committees. Why does this change in congressional power concentration happen? My argument in the book is that there's not one right organization for Congress, and there's a constant struggle for power in a way that satisfies its members. And at various times, that's meant more power to the caucuses, the parties assembled separately out of the chamber and making decisions as parties. Other times it's meant the dominance of committee chairmen who got their jobs by seniority. That was the mid-20th century Congress. And today it means the dominance of elected party leaders. Mike Johnson, of course, is not the most senior Republican at all. He's somebody that his colleagues settled on as somebody who could lead them. Nancy Pelosi, Harry Reid, Mitch McConnell, these have been the figures dominating 21st century congressional politics because their colleagues have decided to empower them. And the reason that their colleagues have done that is that they are laser focused on winning the next election. And they think strong party discipline, where the main thing we worry about is framing questions to be maximally advantageous to our side and disadvantageous to the other side. We live in an unusual age of knife edge partisan competition. You know, I think what we're seeing in 2024 is that this model is not working for the members of the Republican coalition. They've chucked out a speaker for no particular reason, and they were not willing to show partisan discipline enough to keep him around. So Speaker Mike Johnson has been talking about a more decentralized Congress. We don't have a lot of evidence of that in action yet, but my book argues against this leadership-dominated model. The exhaustion is palpable amongst the members themselves. I don't think we should expect that Congress as it existed under Nancy Pelosi is just going to be the way Congress is for the rest of the 21st century. I think there's a lot of signs that our parties are no longer cohesive enough 
internally, ideologically, to muster that kind of discipline that Pelosi managed. There's now a very messy search for a new model going on before our eyes. Why was Speaker McCarthy ousted? And why didn't the Democrats support McCarthy to prevent a more conservative Republican to be elected Speaker? Kevin McCarthy himself misjudged that whole situation. And I think he probably believed the Democrats were going to save him, and he was wrong. (laughs) So that will eternally stand as an indictment of his political judgment. Why didn't they? Well, I think the January 6th stuff hung in the air quite heavily. They thought that if you're going to come ask for us to save you, you got to offer us something. And McCarthy just refused straight up to do that. He said, what I'm offering you is that I'm probably better than the next guy, period. I'm not going to make any kind of signal concession to you. And they said, okay, well, if your offer is nothing, then goodbye. They just said, no, we're just going to keep voting as Democrats. And you Republicans are going to have to decide who you want to vote on as a Republican. That is the historical norm. I think it turned out that they just didn't like working with him that well, that for all of his self-presentation as a sort of affable deal maker, they saw him as somebody who talked out of both sides of his mouth and couldn't deliver much in the end. In your congressional history, you do not focus on the importance of individual personalities and being well-liked. It is policy and power that make the difference. It's true that people can have a lot of disagreement and dislike of each other and still find that they can work with those other people. Ted Kennedy was a very successful legislator. Many of his colleagues thought that he was kind of a sleazeball and that the kind of political rhetoric that he engaged in was despicable. And yet they thought that he was somebody that you could sit down with and make a deal with in the end because he really wanted to get things done and he was willing to listen to what you wanted to get done and figure out how to go forward from there. In the 1960s and 1970s, the Southern Democrats benefited from the seniority system and headed the most important House committees. In 1974, after Watergate, the Democrats won a landslide victory in the House, and the new freshman Democrats revolted against the Southern committee heads and upended the seniority system. What happened? Part of what brought down these Southern chairmen in the mid-20th century is this whole class of younger liberal members, and they just thought, these guys are not going to listen to us. They think it is their institutional birthright to ignore us and to just shut us out. We don't have to put up with it. We're going to change the way the Congress is organized rather than putting up with it. So it wasn't that they thought they were nasty people. It's just that they thought that they couldn't ultimately get a fair hearing for the ideas that they cared about. In 1910, Republican Speaker Cannon's power as the Speaker and the Chairman of the House Rules Committee was challenged, and he was ultimately stripped of his control by Republican progressives. How does that historical example apply today? Speaker Cannon was very well-liked. He was a real outsized personality, And he had put in many decades of service to the Republican cause. He was known as sort of this dedicated soldier for Republicans. But at some point, some of the members of his Republican Party, these progressive members, said, 
this guy just isn't willing to give us a fair hearing when we say that we think railroads are out of control and we need regulatory statutes to get them back in control. He's not listening to us. He's got this rigid orthodoxy that he's hung up on. And if we want to get a fair hearing, we have to change the way things are done. So that's what they found out a way to do by working with the Democrats and getting him off the rules committee, which he had been the chairman of. The question today is, are there a lot of members who feel like they just can't get a hearing for the things that really matter to them? Because our top-down leadership today just basically shuts them out. And I think there are a lot of members on both sides of the aisle who just feel like they can't get anything done at all unless they're working through the speaker's office and that the speaker isn't interested in a lot of other things. With an all-powerful Speaker of the House, individual congressmen do not have much congressional work to do. House members today feel like the way things are organized, my job is to be a glorified telemarketer, raise a lot of money for the party so that we can win the elections. They feel like that's basically the meat of their job, and they don't really get a lot of meaningful power otherwise. And that's not a very good job. And there are a lot of talented, ambitious people in the Congress who wish that they could be solving problems on behalf of the American people. And they feel like the way the Congress is structured today, they just don't have the chances to do that. When I speak to congressmen who are in the majority, they complain that they cannot influence legislation outside of the committees. The minority congressmen feel completely helpless and ignored. It has to be the members themselves who say, this system is not working the way we have it organized today. We have to do things differently. I have to have a chance to make a more meaningful difference and to more meaningfully bring the views of my constituents into the halls of power, not just as an angry voice shouting from the wilderness, but actually as somebody who has a direct say in making the big choices about where this country is going. What you said about both in the minority and the majority party is absolutely right. Backbenchers feel like they have very little important role to play. They're just supposed to show up and cast their votes as they're told. And their committee work, they feel like, doesn't go anywhere. They may frame up some very nice bipartisan bill that everyone works very hard on, and then it will go into the circular file, just nowhere, if the speaker isn't interested in it. So that's very frustrating to members, and we need to change the rules of the way the House works to ensure that when committees do good work like that, it gets a hearing on the floor. That's something that we could guarantee through the rules, and it's time for members to insist on that as a condition of organizing the next House. Members of the House of Representatives get to set the rules anew every time we have a midterm election and start a new Congress. We get new rules. So it's entirely 100% within the member's power to put in a new package of rules that reorganizes who controls the agenda. It doesn't just have to be run out of the speaker's hip pocket. The question is just whether they will avail themselves of that power. And I think the reason that they don't mostly is that there really is a lot of sincere partisan conviction that winning the next election really is more important than any of that kind of stuff. I guess I should be a good foot soldier for the party and leave this congressional organization stuff for another day. So we need something to come along that makes members say, no, let's not do that anymore. Let's actually focus on getting something done for the American people. You know, the immigration debate playing out right now is an interesting test case because 
Joe Biden sure has a lot of incentives to sign some kind of deal. And there really is, I think, a pretty widespread sense that we have a crisis on the southern border. So it seems like it should be a time when you could say, all right, let's make a deal. But you have some Republicans in Congress explicitly coming out and saying, no, I don't want to give Joe Biden anything that he can run on. I'm not seriously interested in making a deal. I'm going to be opposed to anything that Joe Biden would sign. And that's not a totally crazy point of view if you just think the next election is the only important thing. But if you really care about closing down the chaos on the southern border, then that's an offensive point of view because there must be legislative opportunities to do something today. Can you explain what the substantive issues are in the immigration legislation debate being discussed now? We actually look at why, like, the 2013 push for immigration reform failed. I think it has much more to do with this gap in trust from the conservative opponents of immigration. And a lot of that does have to do with the 1986 reform law and the sense that they got played for suckers. That deal was sold as a big compromise that would give an amnesty, but also tighten things up going forward. And it turned out it just didn't really tighten things up going forward. Overcoming that lack of trust, that's a big challenge. I think in some ways, having a more conservative Speaker of the House could make that more possible if he decides that he really wants to get something across the finish line. Perhaps his conservative bona fides can be a big asset in selling it as not a sellout. But on the other hand, it's a risk for him. He would be branded as a traitor by some people, no question, and maybe he doesn't feel ready to weather that storm. And maybe he just thinks it really would be better for Republicans to deny Joe Biden any kind of victory on this and get President Trump back and see what kind of deal can pass with President Trump in the White House. The nature of bipartisan legislation is that it is a compromise. But if the administration only enforces what it wants and disregards what the opposition demanded of the legislation, then there really isn't a deal. Using immigration as an example, the deal could be some amnesty for tightening the border, but that 1986 immigration bill was the same compromise. But the Republicans argue that the Democratic administrations got their amnesty that they wanted, but the Democratic administrations did not enforce the border or the E-Verify requirements for employment that were part of the immigration legislation compromise. Is it necessary to believe that your opponents will honor the compromise for there to be a deal? I think it's a really good question. We've kind of gotten used to a situation where the executive branch gets a lot of creative lawyers to read statutes however the president wants them read, and then they justify doing whatever fits the political agenda of the moment. Whereas we could really try to make Congress a little bit more disciplined in how it writes statutes and then get a little bit more aggressive on saying, hey, the president's job is to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. And we have this much greater willingness to use the tool of impeachment today. Congress can play hardball with the president if they're really frustrated with what he's doing. Of course, if everyone is willing to fall back on their partisan instincts, then the president's partisans can just protect him. And we've seen a lot of that. It would be very healthy if members of Congress could recover an institutional mindset where they think these are the institutional prerogatives of Congress, and because I'm a congressman, I'm going to protect these. Fundamental to your constitutional framework is that Congress is the place to make the rules. 
There are others who believe that the right place is the bureaucracy to make the rules and regulations. The bureaucrats are expert. They can hold public hearings, interpret broad statutes promulgated by Congress, and then make the detailed regulations. Conservatives on the Supreme Court think that the executives in the bureaucracy are violating the constitutional framework by doing the work that is supposed to be Congress's responsibility, and that the U.S. has defaulted to the European Union's method of delegating much of their duties to non-elected bureaucrats. The fundamental question can be put even more sharply, which is people who get elected to Congress, what they're good at is getting people to vote for them and winning partisan primaries and then general elections. Why should they be good at making big decisions about what needs to get done on climate change or asylum policy? They're just dumb generalists. So why should we trust a bunch of dumb generalists to make the right choices? My answer to that is it fundamentally misconceives what politics is all about. If we had a bunch of well-defined questions teed up And the only question is how to answer them to best maximize public welfare, then it's true. We should call in appropriate experts to answer those questions as correctly as we know how and do what they say. But that's not what politics is like at all. We don't have a bunch of engineering challenges we need to solve. We confront this vast society full of contradictions, full of disagreements about what's really important, about how to prioritize between competing goods. We don't even know what the right questions are to be asking. And so the virtue of congressmen is not that they are geniuses or experts, it's that they are representative. It's the representativeness that has to legitimate the body and ultimately legitimate the work of our government. We believe in self-government in America. We do not just believe in saying, well, this problem is hard. We need to call in the expert. And that's the end of the story. Maybe for specific things, we do believe in that. And anybody who thinks that we're really going to cut the bureaucracy out of everything and not have any experts involved in making important decisions is just deluding themselves. Asking the biggest questions, including what is important to us? What is this country all about? We can't leave that to any experts. There are no such experts. We, the people, have to decide, and we do so through our representatives. That's what Congress is for. I saw a play called All the Way on Broadway that starred Brian Cranston. It was about LBJ and passing the Civil Rights Bill of 1964. I saw the HBO movie. The play gives most of the credit to LBJ in passing that landmark legislation. You take a different perspective— What you argue is that the Civil Rights Bill passage reflects the best of what Congress can do by working within the committees and finding bipartisan solutions to an intractable problem. It's very understandable that when we think about American history, we think of presidents. They're compelling figures. They have dramatic arcs. That sort of lends itself to transmuting a lot of stories into very tidy morality plays. And the story of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 has been transformed into that sort of, well, we have all these intransigent Southerners. How are we going to get through them? Oh, brave Lyndon Johnson of Texas is willing to put principle above parochial interest. And by 
virtue of his heart being in the right place and having balls of steel, he's able to take this vision that Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement have teed up and push it across the line into legislation. It's something we can feel pride in that this has happened and something that we can identify with Lyndon Johnson as sort of a protagonist of the story. It's just not a very good rendition of what actually happened. The push for civil rights was truly bipartisan, and Republicans in many ways took the lead during the Kennedy administration because John F. Kennedy had campaigned saying that he was interested in doing civil rights, but then he found it was a very unpleasant thing to actually get in waist deep on the issue and jeopardize his relationships with these powerful Southern committee chairs. So he just mostly wanted to put it on the back burner. And a lot of liberal Republicans, and that was not at all a contradiction of terms at the time, pushed very strongly for a civil rights law. And that was part of what got the ball moving in 1963 before Kennedy's assassination. We had some Republicans who decided to make this a priority, one of whom was the Senate Minority Leader, Everett Dirksen of Illinois, making it a big bipartisan push. How did the civil rights pass and endure? It's because it had a huge bipartisan coalition behind it that included just about everyone other than Southern Democrats. So the work of assembling that coalition really is Congress at its best. It involved a lot of persuasion. The civil rights movement did not just say, we're going to take to the streets and assume everything else is going to fall into place. No, they worked the politics. They did the lobbying. They figured out how to appeal to church leaders who in turn shamed a lot of Midwestern Republicans into believing that indifference was not a valid option, and they got things moving. Now, the Senate majority leader after Johnson became vice president and then president was Mike Mansfield from Montana. He's a fascinating figure. And Mansfield's style was just 180 degrees different from Lyndon Johnson's. He believed in letting people have their say. He believed in working things through. And he actually sat down with Richard Russell of Georgia, the acknowledged leader of the segregationists and said, here's how we're going to work this. Russell thought that Mansfield was giving his side a fair hearing. And that was very, very important. It wasn't just that the civil rights side steamrolled the opposition. It's that Mansfield and Hubert Humphrey, who was his ally, made sure that the Southern segregationists had their chance to have it out and to lose after having had their say. And that's what happened. They eventually lost the cloture vote the bill got through. And then Richard Russell could say, I think this is a bad law. I hope we will reverse it. But now it is the law of the land and everyone should follow it as the law of the land. And I believe we were given our fair hearing and we have to move forward. That's an extraordinary thing that we almost have difficulty imagining in our political environment today, that by working through the legislative process, you reconcile the sides to moving forward and getting on with things. Notice that in your example, Russell and Mansfield sat down and worked things out. They are both Democratic senators. This is not Ted Cruz sitting down with Bernie Sanders from opposite political parties. Having these ideologically mixed up parties in the mid-20th century, which was this peculiar historical artifact, did make the politics of that quite different from ours. Knowing that you're on the same team in the partisan sense does make it a lot easier to cooperate. We're Democrats and we're the governing party and we have to work things out. 
that was a powerful engine of cohesion for a long time. The 1960 presidential election between JFK and Nixon resulted in a tie in the state of Texas. But the Texas congressional delegation went 21 to 1 for the Democrats. Most of them were very conservative politically. Now, this is unimaginable today, as partisanship and political ideology are perfectly correlated. I do want to push back against the idea that our parties are really well sorted out today. When you listen to J.D. Vance talk about what he wants to accomplish, he just doesn't have a whole lot in common with Mitch McConnell. He has more in common with Elizabeth Warren. There's a huge partisan gap and a whole culture war that separates J.D. Vance from Elizabeth Warren, but actually they have a lot to work together on. There's already heterogeneity in both parties today. J.D. Vance wrote a book entitled Hillbilly Elegy, and in it, he describes growing up on the Ohio border with Kentucky and that he lived most of the time with his grandmother in Kentucky. Mitch McConnell is from Kentucky as well, and effectively, these are two men from the same state. And you're right, parties are fluid. They change. The Republican Party has become more populist, and Vance is more populist than the standard Reagan Republican free market libertarian. That said... If we look at the voting records, J.D. Vance and Mitch McConnell have voted together nearly every time. And J.D. Vance has rarely, if ever, voted the same way as Elizabeth Warren. That suggests to me that their interests are aligned, even if their rhetoric doesn't always match. I think you have to go back to how are these congressional votes being framed up. Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer are both pretty good at their jobs in figuring out how to tee things up to divide the two parties into their respective camps. We've reduced the job of a U.S. senator to showing up and casting the vote that their party expects them to cast. So I don't doubt that J.D. Vance and Elizabeth Warren vote the opposite way on a lot of things. Part of what I'm arguing for and why we need a more open agenda is that if they were given a chance to engage in a more fluid search for the policy alternatives that they might agree on, then they would be able to come to more compromises. I don't have anything invested in those two particular figures. Maybe they're both sufficiently committed to partisan warfare that they'll never find their way there. But I do think the voting records are deceptive. They're sort of engineered to create party difference. And the people who engineer those votes know what they're doing. I really want to push back against looking at the voting records and saying, oh, well, they must not really agree on anything. I just think that's wrong. Philip, you're a scholar with the American Enterprise Institute, which is a center-right think tank. Ideas percolate in institutions like AEI, providing analysis, ideas, working papers, and how to solve problems. Then, entrepreneurial politicians run with these ideas, win elections, and try to implement them in Congress. Republicans ran on overturning Obamacare. Senator McCain torpedoed repealing Obamacare back during the Trump era. Was the Republican failure a lack of a health care plan alternative? The Senate, if you'll remember, was voting on skinny repeal. That was what they ended up calling it. It was bare bones repeal that didn't touch most of the law because they had already decided that passing a more ambitious repeal law was going nowhere. They really just didn't know what they were doing. They were trying to get something across the line. And McCain said, no, thank you. This is a big mess. I'm not going to be a part of it. And that failed. Repealing Obamacare had been such a 
empty slogan for so many politicians. And it served as a focal point for anti-Obama feeling more than it served as a healthcare policy. And it turns out the American people really care about healthcare policy. And you really want to get it right when you go in and change it. And there was not enough confidence in how legislators approached the problem in 2017 to get us to a really major overhaul. Instead, they found some provisions that were very unpopular, like the individual mandate, and pruned them away. And that was all that they were able to accomplish. And of course, the Trump administration changed the way Obamacare worked in lots and lots of ways by using the power of the Secretary of Health and Human Services. So it's not that no Republican ideas on health care ever made it through or that the Republicans didn't have any ideas on health care. It's just that they didn't manage to coordinate them into a package that was really ready to go in 2017 when the moment came. I end each episode with a note of optimism. What are you optimistic about with Congress? My boss always likes to distinguish between optimism and hope. Hope is a virtue and optimism is often an expression of naivete. So I'm hopeful about Congress because I believe in James Madison's fundamental insight of ambition, counteracting ambition. And I do believe there's a lot of smart, ambitious, courageous people who want to serve in Congress, who are already serving in Congress, and who are dissatisfied with the way things are today, who really want to do the work of the American people. There's a decent chance that those people will be able to transcend the current strictures of Congress that are so emasculating for its members, and they will push things in a new direction. I don't think it's going to come from well-meaning outside reformers bringing high-minded ideas about democracy. I think it's much more likely to come from members who get really, really energized on a particular issue. And that's why immigration is my best candidate. If we really are serious about fixing this system, if we really do believe it's a crisis that has to get fixed and not just used for electoral fodder, then Congress is the place to figure out how to do that. That remains true. That's a feature of our constitutional system. And because that possibility remains latent, I'm hopeful that they will be able to take it. We'll see. Thanks to Philip for joining us today. If you missed our previous podcast, the topic was expanding the Republican tent with more black, Hispanic, and young voters. Our speaker was Patrick Ruffini, who is the author of the book entitled Party of the People, Inside the Multiracial Populist Coalition, Remaking the GOP. Patrick is the founder of Echelon Insights that uses digital analytics to improve polling and strategy for Republican candidates. Patrick explained why voter behavior is not entrenched and that Republicans have an opportunity to persuade Black and Hispanic voters who lean conservative to vote like their white working-class brethren. I would now like to make a plug for next week's podcast with Aitan Shamir, who is a former head of the National Security Doctrine Department at the Israel Ministry of Strategic Affairs. He is also the author of the book entitled The Art of Military Innovation, Lessons from the Israel Defense Forces. I want to learn from Etan why the IDF is so innovative and why Israel was asleep on October 7th and how the IDF has adapted to the complex military operation that is ongoing in Gaza. You can find our previous episodes and transcripts on our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com. Please subscribe to our weekly emails and follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. 
Thank you for joining us today. Goodbye.